Let's uh, grab your Bibles or your devices. We are beginning a journey in the gospel according to Mark. And so hopefully you can follow along. We'll take a, a larger chunk this morning as we've been laying some foundation, setting the stage, so to speak, to receive the message that Mark wants to communicate, to receive it as fully as possible. And so it's taken a little bit of uh, work to lay that foundation. I found this quote this week in one of my favorite books, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. He quotes Malcolm Muggeridge. I'm probably not pronouncing that correct. He's an English satirist, late English satirist. And he summed up my three sermons in about two sentences this way. He said, Jesus's good news then was that the kingdom of God had come and that he, Jesus, was its herald and expounder to men. More than that, in some special, mysterious way, he was the kingdom. There you go. So if you missed the last couple of weeks, you're caught up. Jesus brought God's kingdom wherever he went with increasing fullness. He brought heaven to earth. He taught his followers to live the same way and to pray that the kingdom would come in ever-increasing fullness. You may remember that from probably the most famous prayer of all time when his disciples asked Jesus, how, how then should we pray? Teach us. They certainly had been seeing him pray and have a regular rhythm of prayer and of power. And he said, pray this way. And pertinent for us is your kingdom come, God, your father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. For, you know, that we would see the will of God fulfilled. That's how he, he taught us to pray. So may it be, as it will be forever and ever, may it be in ever-increasing fullness now, your kingdom come here and now, today and tomorrow. So for those who follow Jesus, we are meant to learn how to be both recipients of the kingdom come, recipients of the kingdom of heaven and of God come, and agents of it, extenders of it. And we do so in the same way that Jesus chose to do, through service and through sacrifice, and that's where the upside-down nature of God's kingdom comes in. The last are first. The weakest are strongest. The overlooked are the ones who are chosen. And for this, it is gospel. It is good news to just about everyone who has ever lived that that could be true. And that's what Jesus came to bring and to reveal. That seems like a daunting task. You know, changing the world through service and through sacrifice, not through power and greed, through love and invitation, not through dominion and force, unlike any other kingdom in the history of the world, upside down. True, if we are dependent on our own strength and ability, our own fortitude and ingenuity, our own wisdom and creativity, then we are in trouble. Thankfully, Jesus shows us another way. Changing the world will take preparation and then a whole lot of power and not worldly power. And that's what Jesus shows us. I won't spend a whole lot of time reading between the lines of what's not said, what's absent in Mark. And certainly you can do that because you, can, you compare the gospel accounts from the different perspectives and it fills out the story, which is beautiful. But I think one would rightly wonder or notice at least that Jesus, if he is the son of God, has come onto the scene quite late. Here he is beginning his ministry, and Mark shows the beginning of this ministry 
Most scholars tend to believe he was around the age of 30. So still a young man in, in, in all respects. And certainly within Judaism, uh, that was some form of coming of age would be around that time of life. So likely those, those things were important for Jesus as he grew as a man. But we do have to question because we don't know much, certainly none from Mark. What was Jesus doing for 30 years? If he is God himself, God incarnate, he was preparing. He was learning. He was growing. He was maturing. He was waiting. And he was trusting God to bring the timing, the kairos moment that we've, we've looked at in past messages. It's a different kind of time. It's a moment of great opportunity. He was trusting God to reveal that timing for him to begin a more public, formal ministry. We don't often think in big chunks of time, I think, whether that's nature or nurture, the world that we live in. It seems like the biggest we might be able to get our heads around is enduring something for maybe a year, making a change for a year. We do this, maybe some of us do this at New Year's resolutions. This year I will. And then by February, uh, it's all completely forgotten for most of us. The thought of enduring a pandemic for another six months seems daunting and wearying for many of us. Most of us can't imagine it's been seven, approaching eight. What if it's two more years or three? How would we feel in response? Do we have, do we have a broad sense of waiting for length, enduring, growing, being equipped and prepared for the long run? That's what Jesus was doing. He had that mind Set. And I'm not giving any kind of prophetic word to this pandemic. I think there's some history behind it that says it often would take years before it runs some form of a course. Do we have a mindset as a people, as a church, to endure, to be prepared for something that God wants to do significantly in the season ahead? I pray that we would. And so doing hard things like this, I think are forming us and preparing us in a way that maybe times of abundance and ease just simply cannot do. I think the old adage is true. We often overestimate what we can accomplish in a year. You think about those New Year's resolutions. We overestimate, which is probably why we, many of us have stopped even that rhythm because we fail, because we think that, oh, I'll accomplish all of these things this year. But we often underestimate what we could accomplish in three, five, or ten when we have a longer range perspective. God, give us that perspective. I believe we're in such a critical time as a church, as the followers of Jesus. Will we be ready for what he's asking of us and inviting us into in the season ahead? So lean in now. This is not a wasted time. Now, amazingly, we will see these first followers of Jesus by Mark chapter 6. Remember, Mark is an urgent gospel. We see immediately, 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 again and again. By, by chapter 6, the disciples are sent out two by two with kingdom power and kingdom authority to preach the gospel, to minister, to heal, and to drive out demons. This is, that's a pretty amazing thought. I'm sure I'll camp on that when we get there. But within 18 to 24 months of being with Jesus, they are sent out with his same kingdom power and authority to preach the gospel. 
And we said we need to rethink and re-understand what truly the gospel is as it's presented. The good news of the kingdom of God come. Because if they could go preach it without knowing anything, really, not and we'll see, they do not understand even the concept of crucifixion and resurrection. That Jesus said, I will be killed and I will rise. He said it again and again. They didn't grasp it. And yet, they went out with power to extend the kingdom and to preach. Imagine that. Would that not convict us that we don't have to have it all quite pieced together to be sent as agents of his kingdom if we truly understand what the gospel is? So we may not need 30 years of preparation. That wasn't meant to be prescription. Jesus took 30. Many of us don't have that long. But within 12, 18, 24 months, people who knew nothing of the kingdom were leaning into it and expanding it in a powerful way. Could we have that kind of mindset of readiness and preparation in this season? Really ready to walk in the kingdom. That may not be how we would normally have phrased it, but the Jews who were waiting for a coming Messiah were longing for, they, they wouldn't have said it that way either. They were ready though for something new. They were ready for freedom from oppression They were ready for peace to return and hope to abound. And they were ready to be unified as a people. Do we not resonate with that? Let me say that again. Ready for something new. Ready for freedom from any kind of oppression. Ready for peace to return and hope to abound. And ready to be unified as a people. That's what they were longing for. And to gain all of these, they were willing to change their way of thinking and therefore their way of acting. That's what we see in these opening verses of the gospel according to Mark. Let's read that first chunk together. We haven't done that yet. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan and confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie because I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We'll pause there. Remember that Mark is giving testimony. He's writing this written treatise to a people he assumes know nothing about Jesus. It's believed to have been written in Rome to a Roman audience, an Italian letter. He he was likely the first one to put it together on paper like this. And so he writes to people who maybe only know about the controversy or the confusion surrounding Jesus. And he's trying to bring clarity to that. And for many, probably introduce them to Jesus and the gospel. So Mark chooses to begin 
by quoting Isaiah 40, and we saw it also as a fulfillment of Malachi 3, prophecies from hundreds of years earlier to ground who Jesus was in a much bigger picture, and we've seen that in the past studies. Isaiah 43 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now it's interesting. First we know that John, this baptizer, that's, that was how they described him. We find out from Luke that he is likely Jesus' older cousin. Certainly he's a relative, but don't think of him as old. If he was only about six months older than Jesus. So a young man around 30, out in the wilderness, kind of fitting the mold of maybe a prophet. Maybe that was part of the allure to him. He's a voice crying in the desert, make straight his paths. Now that seems like a strange thing maybe to our ears, but to a Roman audience, they would have absolutely seen the symbolism, the imagery. You know, the Romans are known for changing the world through engineering. Their highway system that they built transformed the world. It made journeys that would have taken weeks take days. They, they, through engineering and through force, and oppression, of course. They built a system of trade highways unlike any other the world has ever seen. They cut through mountains when that seemed impossible. They built bridges over valleys and and rivers that had never been done before that cut journeys significantly. All not to just increase trade and the power of the empire, but to make straight the way for the emperor for the Caesar to be able to travel in force with his army quicker than anything else that has ever been seen in the world. So when when Mark comes and proclaims, and John comes and proclaims, makes straight his paths, fulfilling Isaiah, the prophecy before the Romans ever built this system of travel and the system of roads, what Mark was clearly showing us and what John was clearly teaching us was that they believed that this coming one, this Messiah, this Jesus, was the true emperor. Make straight his paths. He's the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Now in that day, that was a bold statement to make. It could cost you your life. No Lord but Caesar. He was even considered to be divine. So to claim another has come in the way of the Lord and is the true king of all kings was a bold and powerful claim. And that's why Mark chooses to begin this way because his Roman audience would not have missed the claim. Just like he did with the word gospel, euangelion. It's a good news proclamation. There is a new emperor who has come to reign. Now the Jews were clearly, through the prophecies of old, were waiting for this Messiah figure, this deliverer, this rescuer to come and rule and to reign the king of the kingdom, the Lord of all. The only problem was no one was expecting someone like Jesus, a Nazarene, a Galilean, a a peasant essentially, perhaps a Pharisee. They weren't anticipating an upside down kingdom to come. They were expecting a king to rule with the usual force to deliver them from oppression, all oppression, whether it be Romans or Greeks or Persians or any other oppressor that may come because they were an oppressed people really throughout their history. But this is probably the reason, this longing for this deliverer is probably the reason why so many came out to John in the wilderness to hear what he had to say. 
wondering if now could be the time, if, if this could be the one. Many thought that John himself was the coming Messiah. He maybe fit that mold. He very clearly said, no, I am not. He fulfilled the ministry of Elijah, who was proclaimed to be the one to come and, and make straight the way and, and declare that the Messiah was coming. He said, I'm not even that one. Later, people would attribute that he actually was the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah, fulfilling that Elijah prophecy. He was merely a voice. Even by his own declaration, he says, I'm, the, I'm a servant. In fact, I'm the lowliest of servants. In fact, I'm not even worthy to do the most menial job. And in that day, if you walked into a house, to a banquet, to a meal, there would be servants, sometimes slaves, who would take your feet, untie your dirty sandals. If you knew the roads in that, in that day and everyone walked everywhere, the dusty, dirty, dungy, nasty, stinky, uh, that, was, that was their feet. And these lowest of all slaves would untie one's sandals, would wash one's feet. John is saying, I am not even worthy of taking that position to the one that's coming after me. Do not be confused about who I am. Right, later, he'll say, I must just disappear. I must decrease. He must increase. He had the right perspective about the coming Messiah. It's probably the reason why so many went out to see him, that little bit over the top, bit eccentric, right? It does not fit the mold of the prophet doing something new. There's a powerful picture in this baptism. It's interesting. Baptism simply means to dip under, to immerse in water. So that's what he was doing in the Jordan River. Oftentimes the Jordan River was only deep enough to walk out knee deep, depending on where you were. So you might've had to get down in there to get under fully under the water. There's not all that much evidence of this being a common practice throughout Israel Jewish history. So here's something new. And it makes me wonder if that, if that then increased the curiosity of those going to him. Could now be the time. There's something new. It seems strange, and it was a strange practice. It still is today when we do it. To have someone else help you be dunked completely under the water. By the way, it's a good day for that. Anyone has yet to follow Jesus in that model, because Jesus himself comes to receive this ministry of baptism. For the Jews, they're also... Even if it was a new practice for them, there would have been a connection, though, to the ceremonial cleansing that was a part of their worship and their history, especially for the priests and the Levites, those that served in the temple area, those that mediated between God and, and people. Cleanliness, a process of ritual cleansing because, God's, because of God's holiness, because God is so other. That was what it was meant to, to, to teach so they would take their vessels that they would use and they would, they would dip them, they would cleanse them. It was more about the ceremony, the process, the detail than it was about the water actually cleaning some form of germs off of it. It was a process of preparation to be in the presence of God. You know, even the curtain that hung in the temple, there was this massive curtain in the temple that separated where the priest could normally come with the holy of holies, the innermost part that they didn't even go except for one, one day a year on the day of atonement. This massive curtain from time to time will be taken down and it would take dozens of priests or Levites to handle it. It was so massive. And they would dip it underwater to ceremoniously clean, to baptize, you might say, to immerse it's a really interesting picture. So as, the, as these Jewish 
peoples. And it says all Judea, so certainly non-Jews were coming too to see what it was all about. We're going through the process of baptism. There must have been a connection with the idea of being ceremoniously clean, cleansed, prepared to be used by God and for something more. That was the readiness factor. Now, they also came repenting of their sins, confessing their sins. And more than likely, it wasn't just a a specific, God, forgive me for my anger. But it was more probably in line with John's confession. I am not worthy to even be used as a servant in the kingdom of God. A confession of, of heart, how we've dismissed or disregarded God's call in our life. But in all of this, the cleansing and the setting apart of people to be used by God and for God was likely not John's primary purpose. And we see it here in his message, if we're paying attention. In verse 8, I have baptized you with water. There is a readiness, a preparation. But after me is coming one who is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's the imagery that John is trying to teach and trying to get everyone that would come to say, here's what God wants to do. Here's what Jesus wants to do for you. He wants to pour out his spirit upon you. He wants to immerse you with his presence. He wants to restore his presence fully with his people and ultimately with all creation. That's the story from beginning to end. And it's what John wanted his followers to understand Water baptism may have been new, but it was meant to reflect a very old belief from the prophet Joel, hundreds of years before. Listen to this, prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 28 and following. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions And even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit upon all peoples and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. I think certainly Mark had this scripture and many others in mind as he was performing this new ritual that God's spirit would come, that wonders would be seen in the heavens and on the earth. And now see how that lines up with what we read in verses nine through 11 as Jesus came. And when he came up out of the water, immediately heavens were torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Wonders in the heavens and on the earth. God's kingdom coming from heaven to earth. Mark, I believe, clearly means also as he's reaching back in history, he's looking forward in the fulfillment of what Jesus would would do. It's to be thinking at the beginning of his ministry how it connects with the end. Listen to Mark chapter 15. Spoiler alert. As Jesus is crucified in that very moment, Jesus uttered a loud cry, Mark 15, 37, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, that he died in this way, he said, truly this man was the son of God. 
Now, I, I said that Mark was going to try to prove that how he, how he began. Here is Jesus, the beginning of the gospel, the Son of God. And he'll show us a couple declarations throughout how others came to see him as the Son of God. But just like the moment of Jesus' baptisms, when the heavens were torn open, when heaven was coming to earth in greater fullness, when God was descending ultimately in the, in the symbol of, of the dove, the Holy Spirit was coming upon Jesus at the moment of his crucifixion, essentially all heaven is watching. Heaven is torn open again. And this time the curtain, that very same curtain that we talked about, was torn in two from top to bottom. The thing that separated all peoples from God's presence is torn. Jesus has accomplished it. Heaven has now fully come to earth. The Spirit now doesn't just descend upon him. It's descending to all peoples. That becomes more and more evident as the rest of that story starts to unfold. The Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? We are meant to be the replacement of that temple, not just his church, even we as individuals, both and, filled with his Holy Spirit. Now, what would it look like to live like that? Because I think when Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you who is from God, he intends the answer from those first believers to be, yes, we know that. Then therefore the implied exhortation is then, why aren't you living like it? You have the spirit of the living God on you and in you. And how do we know what that looks like? Because Jesus modeled that life. Jesus himself came deferred in some ways, and we'll dig into that next week, his divinity to, in order to walk as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit and to call those who follow him to live and do the things he did because he'd relied fully on the power of the Holy Spirit, a vital mo model for us. If our answer to how did Jesus do everything he did is because he was God, we've totally missed the model that he wants to show us and how he wants to send us in his, in his power and the power of the Holy Spirit. Stay tuned. That's essentially what next week is and really the rest of the book. Let me ask you, is there a posture of preparation that we can take today? If this message and this time was about a preparation, a, a readying, a, an awareness that God wants to work now, he wants to fill us now for the work ahead, whether it's this week or the weeks to come, perhaps we should always be prepared to receive more of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul will teach us that we need to continually be filled, be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not, there may be a first time that we experience God's Spirit and His power coming into our lives or through us, but there's not meant to be a one time. It's meant to be ongoing. There's also a model of repentance of sin that's before us in this story. Those that were coming out to John, confessing willingly, changing their mind and their way of thinking that would change their actions. I'm sure there were people in that day they were saying, what are you doing? You're going out to this crazy camel skin wearing locust eating wacko and letting him dunk you under the water? Are you insane? It's still a strange practice for us today, but do not miss the importance of following in the model because if we can't say, I'm willing to do that, to be uncomfortable because I, 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 and to be uncertain even of the fullness of what that means, but I want to do so, I want to be cleansed. I want to follow Jesus I don't have it all together. By the way, if we were to do that today, and if you haven't experienced water baptism, you'll never forget today. Just let me know. I'll get in the water with you.
Go right down to the lake or something else. There's a stream here. Maybe it's deep enough. All right, let me know. But is there a model of repentance for us, a changing of our thinking that we are willing to walk in as they did with a confession that says, God, help me see the world as you see it. I wonder if in this season, for some of us, that model, that repentance, that change needs to be related to our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions in the midst of a pandemic. The way we've been thinking about who God is, what his presence is, what he's doing right now, is not honoring to him and what he's inviting us to see. And I wonder if we need to respond in that way. Lord, change my thinking. I'm just, I'm just not seeing you. And we pray. And repentance in that case is such a gift of grace. The ability to change that thinking and say, Lord, help me today and help me tomorrow. Because you are at work. You are who you say you are. I am who you say I am. Just as we sang. God, help me see the world the way you see it. Forgive me for the ways I've distrusted and dismissed you, completely disregarded you with my thoughts, maybe throughout this, these days, this week, this month, this year, my whole life. Forgive me, Lord, for consistently pursuing my own desires, not yours. Here I, here I am stuck, unsatisfied, broken, lost, hurting, maybe a complete mess. Your way, Lord, I want your way. I'm ready. Cleanse me from within, just like this water cleanses the outside. Invite Catherine and Tommy, are your fingers warm enough to lead us for a song or two in response? By the way, as we, for many of us, we have experienced the joy of water baptism or some form of that, which is a powerful symbol. Do not dismiss it. Lean into that. Talk to me if you would like more information about that to follow the ways of Jesus. For all of us who have and for those who even haven't, the communion meal is available. That table is available for us. Hopefully you got your elements. As we sing, you're welcome to share in that with someone near you or even individually knowing you're part of a community where we can't all come to a table right now. So we have to settle in this way. May it still be a powerful spiritual reminder of what Christ has done for us in us. Again, we don't have to have all the answers are all the perspective, but we do say, Jesus, I want more of you. I want to walk in your kingdom. I want to be a recipient of all its blessings, and I want to be an agent to expand it wherever you send me, Lord. Thank you for what you did upon the cross, your broken body for me, your blood shed, that I might have life and life to the full in you. Praise God. Celebrate. Respond, church. Love you if you're freezing cold. And by the time we're done with these songs, if you're gone, miss you. Hope to see you soon. Be blessed, be well for all online. See you soon.